0: We are in Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to go ahead and read through uh, verses 10 and following. We are coming now close to the end of the epistle to the Ephesians, and this, of course, is perhaps the most familiar part of the entire epistle, uh, this section on spiritual warfare. So if you have your Bibles, chapter 6, verse 10, Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I think it's one of the rather sad ironies of the Christian life that the very one who came to bring peace on earth felt it necessary to warn his followers to prepare for conflict. And of course, that is exactly what Jesus Christ came into the world to do, to bring peace. We have that marvelous passage from the prophet Isaiah, which is read every Christmas. If you're not familiar with it from the passage of Isaiah, you're certainly familiar with it from Handel's Messiah. It begins this way, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light those who dwelled in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince the Prince of Peace, of course." And that is exactly what Jesus Christ came into the world to be. That was the prophecy, that He would come to bring peace. And indeed, Jesus did come to bring peace. He brought peace between a warring humanity and a holy and righteous God. But Jesus also acknowledged that while He came to bring that ultimate peace, His very presence on earth would from time to time cause conflict. He acknowledged that in Matthew chapter 3. On one occasion He said, I have not come to bring peace on earth but to bring a sword. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Father will be turned against son, mother against daughter, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. Jesus understood that because he claimed to be the truth and not just a truth, but truth with a capital T, he knew that there was going to be conflict. The truth has a potential to divide. It always has, it always will. Between those who embrace it and those who reject it and that's exactly what happened on earth. Jesus came to bring peace. He was one of the most, he certainly was the most peaceable person who ever lived, and yet wherever he went, there was always conflict. There was always somebody plotting or conspiring against him. He even had problems within the ranks of the disciples themselves with people like Judas Iscariot. Now what is interesting is that an earlier generation of Christians understood this. That is to say they understood that conflict is a part of the Christian life. That struggle, that spiritual warfare is part and parcel of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, this is one of the reasons why they made the distinction between what they called the visible and the invisible church. What's the visible church? Well, the visible church is what you see gathered here today. It's what gathers here on a weekly basis at St. Philip's for worship. But those earlier generations of Christians understood that within that visible church... There is another church, the invisible church. In other words, they understood that simply because people go to church and go through the motions and go through the ceremonies, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have a true and lively faith. This may come as a bit of a shock to you. Benito Mussolini was baptized and confirmed. In fact, if you go to the Holy Land today, and you go to the Mount of Beatitudes, where Jesus actually gave the Sermon on the Mount, there is a lovely chapel up there. It's just magnificent. It's beautiful. The setting is spectacular. And it was given by Benito Mussolini. Adolf Hitler had actually been an altar boy. The very fact that they were members of the visible church does not necessarily mean that they had what we would call a true faith, a genuine faith. Faith. And that's why an earlier generation of Christians made that distinction between the visible and the invisible. And the real question for us is not, are we members of the visible church, but are we members of the invisible church? And furthermore, they made a, another distinction, and that is in the visible church, or in the invisible church rather, there is a distinction between what they called the church militant and the church triumphant. The Church triumphant were those who had died and gone on to be with the Lord. They had, as Paul said, fought the good fight, they had finished the race, they had kept the faith, and there was now stored up for them the crown of life. They were the church triumphant, the saints. We're told that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. I think that's a wonderful depiction. You know, when we celebrate All Saints Sunday, we have to remember that those who have died and have gone to be with the Lord are not actually dead. They are, in fact, more alive than you and I are. And that's the hope that we have. That is the the saints' triumphant. That is the church triumphant. But what about those of us who are left behind? How about the saints below? Well, the early generation of Christians described them as the church militant. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? The church triumphant, we can understand. They're, They're getting their reward, but what about the church militant? The very language of militancy implies what? Conflict, warfare, struggle. You can see this reflected in the great hymns. I love the great hymns of the church because there's such a depth of theology there. But some of the most familiar hymns that we have speak of this kind of spiritual conflict that is part of the Christian life. You're all familiar with this, Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress. And how does it go? It says, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper midst the storms of life. For still our ancient foe, Doth seek to work us woe, his craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. That's the language of warfare, isn't it? Our ancient foe, seeking to work us woe, his craft and power are great. Luther goes on in the second stanza to say, Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Just ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabaoth. What does the word Sabaoth mean? No, it means host, Lord of hosts, that is the captain of the Lord's army, Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. That is the language of warfare, my friends. Think about that the next time you sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Here's one I know you're all familiar with. Onward, Christian Soldiers. Doesn't get any more militant than that. I think the Methodists took it out of their hymnal because they regarded it as too militant. Onward, Christian Soldiers, what? Marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ, the royal master, leads against the foe. Forward into battle. See his banners go. Like a mighty army moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where the saints have trod. We are not divided, all one body we one in hope and doctrine, one in charity. It's reflected in that. And this is my personal favorite, one of my favorite hymns in all the hymnal. For all the saints who from their labors rest, who thee by faith before the world confess, thy name, O Jesus, be forever blessed. But then listen to the next next stanza. Thou wast their rock, their fortress, and their might. Thou, Lord, their captain, in the well-fought fight. Thou in the darkness drear their one true light. Alleluia. O may thy soldiers, faithful, true, and bold, fight as the saints who nobly fought of old and win with them the victor's crown of gold. Alleluia. So how does the Apostle Paul depict the Christian life here in Ephesians? He depicts it as a life of struggle, a life of conflict. This characterized Jesus' life as well, and if it characterized Jesus' life and we are Jesus' followers, we should not be surprised by it. An earlier generation of Christians were not. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. Now, I emphasize that because... To be perfectly honest with you, that is not the way Christianity is presented in the world today. Christianity is hardly ever, when was the last time you heard a sermon, besides at St. Philip's, (laughs) where Christianity was presented as an entrance into a life of conflict? Most of the time, Christianity is presented as what? An exit from conflict and difficulty. How did Johnny Mercer put it? He said you have to accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, and don't mess with Mr. In-Between. That's the idea. You've got to accentuate the positive. We've got a product to sell here, folks. And when you're selling a product, what do you do? You accentuate the positive elements. Oh, this is the sleekest car. You get behind the wheel here and you're going to look so sexy. Now you're only going to get five miles to the gallon. Oh, well, don't talk about that. Don't, don't, don't. no, emphasize, accentuate the positive, you see. Oh, these are the best tasting potato chips you will ever have. How many trans fats? We don't talk about that. We accentuate the positive. Sell the positive. As a friend of mine likes to say, sell the sizzle. That's how we sell things in our culture, and unfortunately that is the way we oftentimes sell the Christian gospel, isn't it? When you hear most sermons, the way it's presented to us is this. Well, if you are sick, come to Jesus and He will heal you. If you are discouraged, come to Jesus and He's going to make you happy. If you are poor, come to Jesus because what He really wants for you is to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Well, don't get me wrong. Jesus can do many of those things. But what is interesting is if you look at the way Jesus actually proclaimed the kingdom of God, He rarely ever presented it as something positive or easy. As a matter of fact, Jesus presented it as just the opposite. He said, anyone who would seek to follow me must first do what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, that is so contrary to the way we look at the Christian gospel today. Deny myself, I want to indulge myself. But Jesus said you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and everybody in the first century knew what that meant. That was an invitation to come and die and follow hard after me. But that is not the way the Christian gospel is presented today. And so we need, to be real, we need to realize that the Christian life is a life of struggle and difficulty. Now, of course, there is the hope of everlasting life. There is the hope of, of that land where there is no more pain, no more sorrow, where God Himself is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. But in the present, well, in the present, there is struggle, there is difficulty. The biblical picture is very, very different. You're actually going to hear a sermon about that today. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We struggle. Now, of course, the question is, what do we struggle against? If we're in conflict or we're in battle, who are we actually battling against? Well, the first thing Paul says is we do not battle against flesh and blood. So our struggle is not a battle against merely flesh and blood. Now, the minute you say that to somebody in our culture today, our struggle's not against flesh and blood. They immediately begin to tune out. Why? Because that implies that it's not real. We live in a culture of isms. Now, we have many isms, but two in particular that I think characterize American society and Western society as a whole. The first is materialism. That is the belief that the only things that really matter are those things that we can see and touch and measure. Now, I describe it up here as matter matters. We are material girls and material boys Living in a what? Material world. Absolutely. That's one of the reasons why you have to sell the sizzle, you see. Because that's what people are interested in, the product, the material things. So that's one of the things that characterizes our society today. The other is secularism. What is secularism? I've characterized it this way. It's the belief that matter is all there is. This life is all there is. There's nothing else beyond it. You might as well eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die and that's the end of it. Life's a beach and then you die. That's the view, isn't it? That that, that is pervasive. It's woven through almost everything in our life today. It's unfortunate, but science sometimes presents the world as a closed system that only contributes to this failure to recognize something beyond just the physical. And I think because of the great advances that have been made in science and technology and medicine in recent years, many people have become very skeptical of anything beyond this realm. Let me just give you a couple of definitions here. Some years ago, I taught a class on science and faith and the relationship between the two. My father was a biologist, so I have a great interest in this subject. But this is a statement from the National Science Teachers Association on what science is, and I just want you to listen carefully to it. And I'm a proponent of science, by the way. I think science is a wonderful thing. But I want you to notice what sort of undergirds, the philosophy that undergirds much of science today. This is the official statement. Science is a method of explaining the natural world. It assumes, I've italicized that, it assumes the universe operates according to regularities and that through systematic investigation we can understand these regularities. Well, that's not surprising. We speak of the laws of physics. The methodology of science emphasizes the logical testing of alternate explanations of natural phenomenon against empirical data. Because science is limited to explaining the natural world by natural processes, It cannot use supernatural causation in its explanations. Similarly, science is, and this is an important word, precluded from making statements about supernatural forces because these are outside its provenance. Science has increased our knowledge because of this insistence on the search for natural causes. Now what does that tell you? It tells you that science believes that the world is a closed system. If there's anything beyond it, well, that's fine, but that's not in our provenance. We don't deal with that. And whatever it is, it's not scientific. Now, that's a prejudicial statement. It's not scientific. If it's supernatural, it's not scientific. With all the advances in science and technology today, you can imagine what that says to people. Just think about it in a more mundane example. When you tell your children... They don't have to go to Sunday school because they don't want to go to Sunday school. Sometimes parents will say to me, it's always a battle. I can't get them to Sunday school. They don't want to go. First question I ask is, what are you going to do tomorrow when they say they don't want to go to school? (laughs) Oh, well, i got to go to school. See, when we tell them they have to go to school, but they don't have to go to Sunday school, and the fear, of course, the answer you normally get to that is, well, I don't want them to grow up and be embittered toward God. Well, you don't seem to be worried about the fact that if they don't go to school on Monday, they're gonna be, if you force them to go, they're gonna be embittered toward wisdom or knowledge or learning or academia. See, we actually send a message, don't we, in this? And actually, that statement by the National Science Teachers Association sends a message. Now, here's a statement by the executive director of the National Center for Science Education, Eugenie Scott. She said, science neither denies or opposes the supernatural, but ignores the supernatural for methodological reasons. This is a statement by Richard Lowenton, who is a Harvard geneticist. He said, Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science in spite of some of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs because we have a prior commitment to materialism translate naturalism. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, we are forced by our a priori adherence to material or natural causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Now, as I said, we have experienced a great many advances in science and technology. And as a consequence of that, this methodological naturalism, which is really the philosophy that undergirds so much of what takes place in science today, this emphasis upon science being a closed system, the universe being a closed system, that the best explanations are always, always natural explanations, no matter how patently absurd they sound has led us in our culture today to fail to take seriously spiritual matters. And so when we hear statements about an invisible war, that we do not struggle against flesh and blood, people immediately say, well, then that means it's not a real struggle at all. No, we think if you're going to battle against something, you've got to battle against the real things. And what are the real things? What are the real things that we're battling against in our culture? Oh, we're battling against poverty and oppression and hunger and justice. Those are the real enemies. But Paul says we don't struggle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Oh, come on. Who believes in that sort of thing anymore? God still gets a degree... Of respect but the devil oh come on can you really believe in that fellow that runs around (laughs) in red leotards with a pitchfork and horns on his head that looks like Gary Marshall oh no there's no way we can believe in that sort of thing and that's where many people are today many people are willing to acknowledge the fact that there is a God they are not willing to acknowledge the fact that there is a devil They do not want to believe that you and I are engaged in a battle. From the moment of our new birth until the moment of our death, we are involved in a struggle. Paul is very clear. It is a struggle not against flesh and blood, but against the schemes of the devil. C.S. Lewis put it well, as he always does. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased with both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. I think one of the questions we might ask ourselves, if there is no real spiritual force of evil in the world, if we're just struggling against oppression and violence and injustice in the world, all of which need to be dealt with. But if those are the real problems, you have to ask yourself, given all of the advantages that we have had and all of the advances that have been made in terms of science and technology, why is it that we have not been able to deal with these problems? Why is it that they continue to crop up? Why is it that we have never been able to deal with violence in our own culture? In fact, we've actually seen an increase in it. The more advanced we have become, the more violent we seem to have become. We've not become more civilized. Why is that? Well, Paul tells us why that is. Reminds me of that scene from The Wizard of Oz, where Dorothy goes in to see the wizard, and the wizard tells her that she's got to go off on this quest and she's got to come back with the broomstick of the wicked witch of the West. If she does that, he'll grant her request. Well, she goes off, and as you know, she takes care of the wicked witch. She liquidates her. And then, well that's what he says, and then she comes back and she stands before the great and powerful laws and you see that head up there and the flames and the voice that is booming and then all of a sudden Toto goes over and pulls back a curtain. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Paul says that is exactly what we're dealing with we think that the problem out there are all these things hunger injustice oppression slavery all of those things and they are problems but Paul says if you are battling against them you are simply battling against the symptoms you are not battling against the cause there is a dark force a personal force behind it all Paul makes that very clear. That is our enemy. Paul not only says that is our enemy, but he says you need to understand the field of battle. Listen to these words again. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What does Paul mean? When he speaks against struggling, not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers. Now, rulers, authorities, that, that sounds like flesh and blood, doesn't it? So what does Paul mean here? I don't think that he is talking about individuals or even human beings necessarily. Paul's not talking about ranks. Paul is talking about spheres, spheres of influence. When Paul says... Our struggle is against the rulers. What is a ruler? A ruler is a person who exercises authority over a region. Isn't that right? If you're the Queen of England, you exercise authority over a region, the realm of England. Those who rule in America exercise what? Dominion over a region, the United States. When Paul talks about our struggle not being against flesh and blood, but against rulers, I think that's what he means. I think he means that there are certain parts of the world that are under demonic oppression. And we struggle against that. Talk to Ryan Street sometime. He's been a missionary, as you know, to India. And he can tell you some stories that will actually make your hair curl. And I discovered this years ago when I took a pilgrimage to Ireland in the footsteps of St. Patrick. And St. Brendan and others, I was astonished at just how pagan Ireland was before the advent of Christianity. I mean, I know we all think that the Irish saved civilization, that's probably true. But you have to realize how pagan Ireland was before that. I mean, it was a terrible place, it was a place where they sacrificed children and women, it was horrible. And the same thing was true for the whole of the British Isles. It would be the advent of Christianity and the continuous preaching of the Christian gospel over the course of centuries that would drive out that paganism. But there are still vestiges of it. I'm reminded of that hymn, Jerusalem, which is taken from William Blake's poem. And listen to how he describes it. Now, if you don't know that story, um, that hymn is the most popular hymn in the Church of England. And it's based upon a legend, just a legend. And the legend is this, that when Jesus was a child, he was taken by Joseph of Arimathea to England. Joseph of Arimathea was a traitor, and he went to various countries, and and of course England at that point was part of the Roman Empire. And so the story goes that Joseph of Arimathea sort of took Jesus under his wing, the little Jesus, the young Jesus, and took him to England. And that's the legend. You know, is it true? I, I don't know. Probably not. But it ought to be. At any rate, this is how William Blake described it. This is how he described England. Now listen to this. He said, And did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's mountains green? And was the holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? And did that countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here among these dark satanic mills? William Blake understood his country's history very well. He knew exactly that England had been a pagan place, a dark place. and It was the advent of Christianity that would drive that out. Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. I think that's part of what he means. There are parts of the world where there is a demonic, dark influence. There are some places where that has been driven out, but because we have lowered our guard, it is creeping back in again. When Paul talks about authorities, what does he mean? I don't think he's talking about figures necessarily, but I think he is talking about those things that have authority over our lives, those things that have a tendency to influence us, the isms that I refer to, those things that characterize our culture and drive us, materialism, secularism, multiculturalism, the view that all beliefs, all viewpoints is equal, all cultures are equal. Those are the things that drive us today, and Paul says we are struggling against those. We have to struggle against them. Why? Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no other way to the Father except through me. Well, if you go out and proclaim that in our culture today, how accepting are people going to be? What we are discovering is that people are becoming not simply indifferent, but antagonistic toward that point of view. And that's going to lead to what? Conflict. (laughs) Sooner or later, it's going to lead to conflict. Paul says our struggle is not just against rulers and authorities, but against powers. What does he mean by that? Well, power is that which controls. And our culture, I would just give you a couple of examples. The media, Hollywood, those are the things that control. They are the things that tell us what we should want, what we should desire, and what we should be like. So when Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, what he's saying is our Our struggle is against the spirit of the age. And that's something spiritual. That's not something you could just put your finger on. That is something much darker, more nebulous, and even more malevolent. So I want you to understand this. If you're a Christian, you have not joined on to a cruise ship. You've signed on to a battleship. And ours is a struggle. Now the question is, how can we fight those kinds of forces? My goodness, I mean that—that's overwhelming. Sometimes we Christians feel as though we're just being snuffed out. How do we battle against these sorts of things? Well, Martin Luther, again going back to that great hymn, put it well. He said, "Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing." We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Thus ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord, Sabaoth His name from age to age the same, and He must win the battle. The point is we can't do it in and of our own. We do not have the strength to battle against these things. But we do have the power through the might of Jesus Christ. And He has supplied us with all the necessary tools that we need in order to stand. Verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Let me just review for you again. You need to understand, as a Christian, the Christian life is a struggle. And it is an ongoing struggle. Now, there may be periods of relative peace and calm in your life. And there may be periods of relative peace and calm for Christians in a particular society. But it is temporary. How long am I going to have to struggle? As I said, from the moment of your birth to the moment of your death. I'm not talking about the moment of your physical death, but the moment of your spiritual birth. From the moment of your spiritual birth, To the moment of your death, you are going to battle against these forces. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against rulers, regents, against authorities, values, against powers controlling influences. This is why John Bunyan in his great Pilgrim's Progress depicted the main character, Christian, battling against Apollyon. Apollyon is a name given to the devil in the book of Revelation. We'll come to it in a moment. But that's how he's depicted. That, of course, is a picture of the Christian life. You and I are on a pilgrimage to the celestial city. If you've never read John Bunyan, you ought to go back and read it. It's a classic of literature. But Pilgrim is, that's his name, Pilgrim, he becomes Christian, is on this journey to the celestial city. But all along the way, as he's making his way to that celestial city, He is battling against various foes all along the way. And the most fierce of all the foes, the one that he encounters last is this one, Apollyon, the devil. And that's what Paul says. He says, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the armor of God, for you do not struggle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. But earlier in that he says as laying the foundation, put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against what? The schemes of the devil. All these things, the rulers, the authorities, the powers, they are merely the weapons in the hand of the one who is pulling the strings, the one behind the curtain. My friends, Jesus took the devil seriously. If Jesus took the devil seriously, we need to take the devil seriously. It's as simple as that. We may live in a skeptical age, but this is the teaching of the scripture. We need to say something about the devil here we need to understand who we're battling against the more we know about him the better off we will be first thing we need to understand is that he is a serious enemy it's interesting that every time we baptize a child and we have the baptismal vows the parents are asked to make a series of promises and one of the things that they are asked to do is to renounce what Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God. It's interesting, some years ago, they took that portion out of the Church of England's baptismal service, because they thought that in a, an enlightened society, people would not be happy with that. So the Church of England actually took it out of their baptismal service for about 15 years, and they suddenly saw a rise in youth violence in Britain and troubled youth, and the Church of England decided that they needed to put it back into the service, and that's what they did. Well, we acknowledge that, acknowledge the fact that we are struggling against spiritual forces of wickedness, and the first thing we need to say about the enemy is that he is serious. This is no small thing. As Luther said, his craft and his power are great. He is a powerful foe. I want you to know that if you are battling against the devil, he is more powerful than you are. The way Peter describes him in his epistle as a roaring lion. Who wants to contend with a roaring lion? I saw somewhere recently where a woman was at a zoo. I don't know if you saw this recently. And she got close to, uh, was it a leopard or a tiger or something like that? And it actually reached through the bars and attacked her. Of course, she was foolish to get that close to the animal in the first place. But the point is, you can't battle against an animal like that. The very fact that Peter describes the devil as a roaring lion tells us that he is far more powerful than we are. That's why Luther said, if we in our own strength confide, our striving will be losing. So you need to understand, first of all, that we are battling against a fierce and powerful foe in our culture. Second thing is, you have to understand he is hateful, filled with hate. He hates the followers of Jesus Christ. He hated Jesus Christ himself. He did everything in his power to destroy Jesus Christ. And if he cannot destroy Christ, he will do everything in his power to destroy the followers of Jesus Christ. This is why the book of Revelation describes him as Apollyon. You know what that word means? It means the disruptor. The disruptor. And that's what the devil comes to do. He comes to disrupt your life. To bring confusion and discord And hopelessness and here's the third thing he is crafty he is crafty he's been around for a very long time and he's a serious student of human beings he knows what we are and he knows how to get at us and he doesn't always approach in precisely the same form or in precisely the same way How did he come at Eve? Well, he didn't come at Eve in any kind of fierce way like a lion. He came in a beguiling way, offering her something that appeared at first glance to be positive, didn't he? Ah, if you eat of the tree, you will be like God. Well, that looks like a good proposition. He's crafty, he beguiles Eve. And that means that he knows when he can strike. And we need to know when the devil's going to strike. If if we can have a sense of when he's going to attack us, we can be ready for it. How does he know when to strike? Well, first of all, he strikes when a believer is young in the faith. When a person first comes to faith, they are so joyful about the fact that their sins have been remitted, that their past has been wiped clean, that they are now a child of God. What a wonderful thing that is. But you know, we are still human beings. Martin Luther said, we are simul ustus et peccator. Do you know what that means? It means at the same time, sinners and yet justified. That is to say, we have been declared righteous in God's sight. We've been accepted by Him as sons and daughters of the Most High. But we still struggle inwardly. And we still, from time to time, blow it. How many of you have ever had that experience in your life? You've blown it from time to time. You have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And even sinners do it. Or Christians do it, rather. Vice versa, any way you want to look at it. And even Christians sin from time to time. But see, the problem for a young Christian is that they come and they're so enthusiastic, they're so excited about the Lord, that the first time that they really fall from grace, as it were, what happens? The devil comes and he says, Ah, you see, you weren't really serious about your Christian faith to begin with. It was just a, a passing fancy. It was just an episode. But look at you, you've already fallen back into your old ways and that can be so discouraging that's the disruption part you see it could be so discouraging to a person who's trying to follow after christ that when they blow it they think that they've blown it forever ever had that experience in your life the devil is an accuser that's what he comes to do i'm sure he did it to peter when peter denied the lord three times after the resurrection can you imagine how peter felt when he encountered jesus i'm sure the devil came to him and said peter you're finished You know, you said you would go with Jesus to prison, even to death, and you've denied Him three times. You've called down curses on your head. You denied the Lord even to a little child. You know, the only difference in some respects between Peter and Judas was that Peter understood that there was nothing that could separate him from the love of God. Every indicator in the Scripture suggests to us that Judas, in the end, was sorry for what he did so sorry that he went out and he hanged himself. What he never understood was the gospel of grace, that you can never fall too far from God's grace. You can turn and come back. Peter understood that. Judas did not. But that's when the devil comes and he accuses. comes when the believer is afflicted. When you're afflicted, sometimes you feel as though you're all alone, don't you? One of the things I'm going to say in the sermon today is that the worst feeling in the world, at least in my opinion, the worst feeling in the world is the feeling of loneliness. Listen, the one thing the devil wants to do is divide and conquer. He does not want you to be with other Christians. But the one thing you need more than anything else if you're going to grow in grace is you need to surround yourself with fellow believers. There is safety in numbers. The devil comes at us when we've had a great victory. That was the case with Peter, wasn't it? Jesus is up there in Caesarea Philippi and they're walking along and the Lord turns to his disciples and he said, who do men say that I am? And everybody says, oh, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're one of the prophets. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And only Peter was willing to proffer an answer. And what did he say? You are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. And at that point, the gospel writer says, Jesus went on to explain what it meant to be the Messiah, what it meant to be the Son of God. He said, I'm going to have to go up to Jerusalem, be denied uh, at the hands of my own people, and ultimately be persecuted and executed on a cross. And what did Peter do? Peter had that flash of insight just moments before. Jesus said, yes, this is true. This has been revealed to you by my Father in heaven. Peter, you're right. Good for you. You're the rock. I'm going to build my church on you, buddy. And then Peter says, well, if I'm the rock, i got the... Got the victory here. I got the inside. I know what this is all about. He turns around and he says to Jesus, Well, let me tell you. Let me tell you something else I know. God forbid that's never going to happen to you. And at which point, Jesus, who had just declared Peter to be the rock upon which he would build his church, turns around and says, Get thee behind me, Satan. For you have your mind fixed on the things below, not on the things above. Now, he just had a great victory. That's why I always say, Poor Peter. I mean, Peter always passes the test and still flunks the course. <laughs> that's how the devil comes. You'll notice at the time of Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River, where the heavens were opened and the voice of God declared him to be the Son of God and the Spirit descended. What was the very next thing that happened? He was led out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. In all four of the Gospels, that's what happens. The devil will come when the Christian is victorious. The devil will come when the Christian is idle. You've all heard the expression, idle hands are the devil's workshop. It was true. great example of that is King David in 2 Samuel. We're told that when the time of the year came, this is the way 2 Samuel describes it. You can read it for yourself. It's right there in verse 1. When the time of the year came, when kings go off to war, David stayed at home. And the very next verse says, and while he was at home, walking on the parapet of his palace, he saw this lovely woman, the neighbor lady, sunbathing on the roof. And her name was Bathsheba, and you know the rest of the story. Now what is interesting is the way the text put it. In the spring of the year, when kings go out to war, David stayed home. Now David probably at this point in his life was in his 50s. He was not a coward. We all know that. He'd gone up against Goliath. He had led in battle against the Philistines. The point was, he was in his 50s and he had fought his battles and he thought that the best thing for him to do was to stay home. He had generals that could go out and campaign for him. Armies, of course, could not campaign in the winter. They could only campaign in the spring and in the summer. And so he felt that it was appropriate for him to stay home. But because he was not out there with the troops, leading them as the king should have been, and he was at home, he was subject to temptation. Let me tell you something. The devil's going to come at you if you're not working. So you cannot be idle. You need to be engaged in some sort of Christian ministry. The devil will come when the Christian is isolated all by himself and feeling self-sufficient. And finally... And this is the shocker. The devil comes when the Christian is dying. Now, personally, I feel that the Lord is very close to His saints when they are at the point of death. But let me tell you, the devil will oftentimes take his last shot at the saints at that very moment. This is the way one of the great Protestant reformers, William Gurnall, put it. He said, At the hour of death, when the saint is down and prostrated in his bodily strength, Now this coward falls upon him. As they say of the natural serpent, he never is seen at his length till dying. So this mystical serpent never strains his wit and wiles more than when his time is thus short. The saint is even stepping into eternity and now he treads upon his heel, which if he cannot trip up so as to hinder his arrival in heaven, yet at least to bruise it, that he may go with more pain thither." My friends, I want you to understand we're in a battle. If you're a Christian, you are in the army of the Lord. And it is a conflict. And your enemy is wily, powerful, and he wants to bring you down. But there is one who will fight for you. Who will give you the strength to not only survive, but to be more than a conqueror and that is Jesus Christ. And what's more, he provides us with every means, every spiritual tool necessary in order to triumph. And that's what we're going to take a look at next week. We're going to take a look at the various pieces of spiritual armor. If this is a spiritual battle, not against flesh and blood, then we need a spiritual armor that can help us in a battle that is not against flesh and blood. And we'll take a look at those various pieces of armor next week. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks and praise for Paul and for his honesty. We want to go through life with no trouble. We want to go through life and have it easy. But that is not the Christian way. It was not the way for Jesus. It was not the way for the apostles. Every single one of them died a martyr's death with the exception of John, and even he died in exile. That's not what we hope for. It's not what we hope for for our children, but it is our lot in life. Give us grace to remember that you have already won the war. We are simply engaged in a mop-up operation. And Give us the courage and every spiritual benediction and grace necessary to win the day and having gained the ground to stand firm. For Jesus' sake, amen.